Section 8 of Sasha. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kevin Davidson. www.blogordie.com. Sasha by Alexander Kuprin. Translated by Douglas Ashby. 8. How I Became an Actor. This sad and funny story, more sad than funny, was told me by a friend of mine who had led the oddest sort of life. He had been what we Russians call on the horse and under the horse, but he had not in the least lost under the lash of destiny his kindness of heart and his alertness of mind. Only this particular experience produced a rather curious effect on him, he gave up going to the theater after it, and, until the present moment, nothing will drag him into one. I shall try to transmit my friend's story, though I am afraid that I shall be unable to reproduce the simplicity, the soft and melancholy mockery which he put into it. 1. Well, it's like this. Can you picture for yourself a wretched little southern country town, in the middle of it there is a sort of monstrous shallow pit where the Ukrainians of the neighborhood, up to their waists in mud, sell cucumbers and potatoes from their carts. This is the bazaar. On one side street is the cathedral, and naturally the cathedral street. On the other, the town square. And on the third, the market stone stalls, the yellow plaster of which has peeled off. Pigeons are perching on the roof and cornices. Finally, on the fourth side, stretches the main street, with a branch of some bank or other, a post office, a solicitor, and the barber Theodore from Moscow. In the outskirts of the town, an infantry regiment was then billeted, and in the town itself, a regiment of dragoons. In the town square stood the summer theater, and that's all. Still, one must add that the town itself, with its Duma and secondary school, to say nothing of the square, the theater, the paving in the main street, all this exists thanks to the liberality of a local millionaire and sugar manufacturer, Kartanenko. 2. How I stumbled into the place is a long story, but I'll tell it briefly. In this little town I was to meet a friend, a real true friend, God rest his soul. But he had a wife who, as usual with the wives of our true friends, could not bear me. He and I each had several thousands put by through hard work. He, you see, had worked for many years as a pedagogue and as an assurance inspector at the same time, while I had been lucky at cards for a whole year. Suddenly we stumbled on a very advantageous enterprise in southern skins and decided to try our luck at it. I started at once, and he was to rejoin me two or three days later. As my carelessness was an old story, our little capital was kept by him, but in a separate bundle, for my friend was a man of German carefulness. And then became the hail of misfortunes. At the station of Kharkov, while I was eating some cold sturgeon sauce, Provençal, I was robbed of my pocketbook. I arrive at C, this very little town of my story, with the small change left in my purse, and a lanky, 
but good reddish-yellow English portmanteau. I put up at a hotel, naturally the Petersburg Hotel, and began to send telegram after telegram. Silence of the grave. Yes, yes, literally, of the grave, because at the very moment when the thief was stealing my pocketbook, what tricks fate plays, at that very moment my friend and companion died in a cab from paralysis of the heart. All his things, including his money, were sealed, and for some idiotic reason or other, the wrestling with officials lasted a month and a half. Did the widow, deeply lamenting, know about my money, or did she not? I can't answer that question myself. However, she received all my telegrams, every one of them, but remained stubbornly silent, silent from petty, jealous, silly, feminine revenge. All the same, these telegrams were of great use to me later on. After removing the seals, an advocate, a complete stranger to me, who was looking after the widow's inheritance, came across them quite by accident, made the widow ashamed of herself, and at his own risk transferred five hundred roubles to me at the theater. But I must add the fact that they were not mere telegrams, but tragic lamentations of twenty or thirty words each. 3. I had been at the Petersburg Hotel for ten days already. My tragic lamentations had quite exhausted my purse. The hotel proprietor, a gloomy, sleepy-haired Ukrainian with the face of an assassin, had long ago ceased to believe in my word. I showed him certain letters and papers by which he could have, etc., etc., but all he did was to turn his face scornfully away and snort. Finally, they served me with dinner as though I were Gogol's Klestakov. The proprietor has said that this was for the last time. And then came the day when there was left in my pocket a single orphan greenish silver twenty kopeck piece. That morning the proprietor said insolently that he was not going to feed me or keep me any longer, but was going to report me to the police inspector. By his tone I could see that he would stop at nothing. I left the hotel and wandered about the town. I remember entering a transport office and another place to look for work. Naturally it was refused me at the very first words. Sometimes I would sit down on one of the green benches that lay all along the main street between the high pyramid-like poplars. My head swam. I felt sick from hunger. But not for a moment did the idea of suicide enter my mind. How many, many times in my tangled life have I been on the border of these thoughts? But then a year would pass, sometimes a month, or even simply ten minutes, and suddenly everything would be changed. Everything would be going luckily again, gaily, nicely, and all through that day I was wandering about the town, dull town. All I kept saying to myself was, Yes, my dear Pavel Andreevich, you've got into a nice mess. I wanted to eat, but through some sort of mysterious presentiment I clung to my twenty kopecks. Dusk was already falling when I saw on the hoardings a red poster. In any case, I had nothing to do. 
So I mechanically approached it and read that they were giving that day in the town gardens Kuzkov's tragedy, Uriel Acosta, in which so-and-so and so-and-so were to appear. Two names were printed in large black letters, an artist from the Petersburg theatres, Madame Androsova, and the well-known artist from Kharkov, M. Lara Larsky. The other names were in small print. Last of all, in the smallest letters came Petrov Sergeyev, Ivanov Sidrov, Grigorev Nikolaev, and others, stage manager M. Samoylenko, managing director M. Valerianov. A sudden, desperate inspiration seized me. I rushed across to the barber, Theodore, from Moscow, and with my last twenty kopecks had my mustache and short pointed beard shaved off. Good Lord! What a morose, naked face glanced at me from the looking-glass. I could scarcely believe my own eyes. Instead of a man of thirty, not too good-looking, but at all events of decent appearance, there, in the looking-glass in front of me, swathed up to his throat in a barber's sheet, sat an old, burned-out, inveterate, provincial comic, with traces of all sorts of vice in his face, and apparently not quite sober. "'You're going to work in the theatre? asked the barber's assistant, as he shook off the sheet. "'Yes,' I answered proudly. "'Here you are.' Four. On my way to the town gardens, I thought to myself, there's no misfortune without some good in it. I shall be taken at once for an old and experienced sparrow. In these little summer theatres, every useless man is useful. I shall be modest at the beginning, about fifty roubles, say, forty a month. The future will show I'll ask for an advance of about Twenty roubles. No, that's too much. Say ten roubles. The first thing I'll do with it will be to send a hair-raising telegram. Five times five, twenty-five, and not two roubles, fifty kopecks, and fifteen extra change. That's two roubles and sixty-five kopecks. On the remainder I shall get through somehow or other until Ilya arrives. If they want to test me, well... What about it? I shall recite something. Why not the monologue of Piman in Boris Gudunov? And then I began aloud in deep, pompous, strangled tone, and yet the no other farewell word. A passerby jumped away from me quite frightened. I felt ashamed and cleared my throat. <clears throat> but I was already getting near the town gardens, a military band was playing. Slim young ladies of the district dressed in pink and sky blue were walking about without their hats, and behind them stalked laughing aloud, their hands thrust in their jackets, their white caps rakishly on one side, the local scribes, the telegraph and excise clerks. The doors were wide open. I went in. Someone asked me to take a ticket from the cash desk, but I said carelessly, "'Where's the manager, Mr. Valerianov?' Two clean-shaven young men sitting on a bench not far from the entrance were at once pointed out to me. I approached them and halted two steps away. They were engrossed in their conversation and took no notice of me, so I had time to examine them. 
one of them in a light Panama hat and a light flannel suit with little blue stripes, had an air of sham nobility and the haughty profile of a provincial lover. He was playing negligently with his walking stick. The other, in a gray suit, was extraordinarily long-legged and long-armed. His legs seemed to begin at the middle of his chest and his arms probably extended below his knees. Owing to this, when sitting, he had the appearance of an odd broken line, which, however, one had better describe as a folding measure. His head was very small, his face was freckled, and he had animated dark eyes. I coughed modestly. <clears throat> they both turned towards me. "'Can I see Mr. Valerianov?' I asked amiably. "'I am he,' the freckled one answered. "'What do you want?' "'You see, I wanted—' Something tickled my throat. "'I wanted to offer you my services as, uh, well, as a second comic or, well, third clown. Also character parts. Principal lover rose and went off whistling and brandishing his stick. "'What previous experience have you had?' Valerianov asked. I had only been once on the stage when I took the part of Makarka at some amateurish theatricals, but I drew convulsively on my imagination and replied, As a matter of fact, I haven't taken part in any important enterprise like yours, for example, up until now, but I have occasionally acted in small troops in the Southwest. They came to grief as quickly as they were organized, for instance, Marinich, Sokolovsky, and there were others, too. "'Look here, you don't drink, do you?' Valerianov asked disconcertingly. "'No,' I replied without hesitation. "'Sometimes at dinner, with my friends, but quite moderately.' Mr. Valerianov looked down at the sand, blinking with his dark eyes, thought for a few seconds, and then said, "'Well, all right, I'll take you on. Twenty-five roubles a month to begin with, and then we'll see. You might be wanted even today.' Go to the stage and ask for the manager's assistant, Lukovskoy. He will introduce you to the stage manager. On my way, I thought to myself, why didn't he ask for my stage name? Probably he forgot. Perhaps he guessed that I had none. And in case of an emergency, I then and there invented a name. Not particularly sonorous, a nice simple name. Osinin. Five. Behind the scenes I found Luchovskoy, a nimble fellow with a thievish, tipsy face. He at once introduced me to the stage manager, Samyulenko, who on that day was acting in some kind of heroic part and, for this reason, sported golden armor, hessian boots, and the makeup of a young lover. However, through this disguise I could distinguish that Samyulenko was fat, that his face was quite round, with two small cunning eyes and a mouth folded in a perpetual sheep's smile. He received me haughtily without even offering his hand. I was inclined to move away from him when he said, "'Wait a minute. What's your name? I didn't make it out.' Vasilyev. Tukhovskoy rushed up with the information. I felt confused. Wished to correct the mistake, but already it was too late. "'Here you are, Vasilyev. Don't leave the place today. The Hofskoy, tell the tailor to give Vasiliev his get-up. Thus, from Osinian, I became Vasiliev, and I remained Vasiliev 
together with Petrov, Ivanov, Nikolaev, Grigoryev, and Sidorov, and others, to the very end of my stage career. Inexperienced actor as I was, it was only after a week that I realized, among all these sonorous names, mine alone covered a human being. The accursed series of names ruined me. The tailor came. A thin, lame man wrapped me up in a long black calico shroud with sleeves and tacked it on me from head to foot. Then came the coiffure, in whom I recognized Theodore's assistant, who had just shaved me, and we exchanged a friendly smile. He put a black wig with love locks on my head. The Khoskoy rushed into the dressing room and shouted, I say, Vasiliev, make yourself up. I stuck my finger in some kind of paint, but my left-hand neighbor, a severe man with the forehead of a deep thinker, stopped me. Can't you see that you're using a private box? Here's the box for general use. I saw a large case with divisions full of dirty paint all mixed together. I felt dazed. It was easy enough for Dukhovskoy to shout out, Make yourself up. But how was it to be done? I manfully put a white dash along my nose and looked immediately like a clown. I traced cruel eyebrows. I made blue marks under my eyes. Then I reflected, what else could I do? I blinked and managed to insert between my eyebrows two vertical wrinkles. Now I resembled a red Indian chief. Vasiliev, get ready, someone shouted from the top of the stairs. I went up and came to the threadbare cloth doors of the back wall. Duhovskoy was waiting for me. You are to go on at once. Devil take it, what on earth do you look like? And soon, as they say, no, he will come back. Go on. Go on and say he gave some kind of proper name which I have forgotten. So-and-so is asking for an interview, and then exit. You understand? Yes. No, he will come back. I hear. And pushing past Dukhovskoy, I rushed on the stage. What the deuce was the name of that man? A second, another second of silence. The house is like a black moving abyss. Straight in front of me on the stage are strange, rough-painted faces, brightly lit up by the lamps. Everyone looks at me expectantly. Dukhovskoy whispers something at the back, but I can't make it out. Then suddenly I fire off in a voice of solemn reproach. Yes, he has come back. Past me, like a hurricane, rushed Samulenko in his golden coat of mail. Thank God! I disappeared behind the curtain. I appeared twice more in that show. In the scene when Acosta gives the familiar thundering against the Jews and then falls, I was supposed to catch him in my arms and drag him behind the curtains. In this business I was helped by a fireman, got up in a black shroud like my own. How is one to know? Perhaps the public thought he was Sidorov. Uriol Costa appeared to be the actor who had been sitting with Valerianov on the bench. He was, too, the well-known artist from Kharkov, Lara Larsky. We took him a little awkwardly. He was a heavy, muscular man, but luckily we didn't drop him. He said to us in a whisper, Devil take you, you louts! We dragged him with equal luck through the narrow doors, though afterwards the black wall of the ancient temple shook and swayed for a long time. 
My third appearance was without words at the judgment of Acosta. A little incident, hardly worth mentioning, occurred. It was simply when Ben Akib came in, everyone rose, but thanks to my habit of gaping about, I continued sitting. Someone, however, pinched me painfully above the elbow and hissed out, Are you crazy? It's Ben Akib. Get up! I rose hurriedly. On my honor, I didn't know that it was Ben Akib. I thought it was just a little old man. At the end of the performance, Samyolenko said to me, Vasilev, rehearsal tomorrow at eleven. I went back to the hotel, but on recognizing my voice, the proprietor banged the door in my face. I spent the night on one of the little green benches between the poplars. It was warm sleeping there, and I dreamed of glory. But the cold morning dew and the feeling of hunger woke me up rather early. 6. Exactly at half-past ten I arrived at the theater. There was no one there as yet. Here and there in the gardens, sleepy waiters from the summer restaurant were wandering about in their white aprons, in a summer house of green trellis work, interwoven with wild vines. They were preparing someone's breakfast or morning coffee. I learned later on that the manager, M. Valerianov, and the elderly ex-actress, Madame Bulyatova Chevenogoroskaya, a lady of about sixty-five, who financed the theatre, and the manager himself breakfasted there every morning in the fresh air. The table was laid for two with a white glistening cloth, and two little piles of sliced white and brown bread rose on a plate. Here comes the ticklish part of my story. For the first and last time in my life I became a thief. Glancing round quickly, I dived into the arbor and seized several slices of bread in my open hand. It was so soft, so exquisite, but as soon as I was outside again I ran up against the waiter. I didn't know where he came from. Probably I hadn't noticed him behind the arbor. He was carrying a cruet stand with mustard, pepper, and vinegar. He looked hard at me, then at the bread in my hand, and said quietly, "'What does this mean?' A sort of burning, scornful pride welled up in me. Looking right into the pupils of his eyes, I answered as quietly, It means that since four o'clock the day before yesterday I have had positively nothing to eat. He spun suddenly around, without uttering a word, and ran off somewhere. I hid the bread in my pocket and waited. I had a feeling at once of dread and joy. That's excellent, I was thinking. Now the proprietor will rush up, the waiters will gather round, and they will whistle for the police, or there will be a row, insults, a fight. Oh, how magnificently I shall smash these very plates and cruets over their heads. I'll bite them until I draw blood. But then what do I see? My waiter is running back to me by himself. He was a little out of breath. He came up to me sideways, without looking at me. I, too, averted my eyes. And then, suddenly, from under his apron, he pushed into my hand a piece of yesterday's cold meat, carefully salted, and whispered entreatingly, "'Please do eat, I beg of you.' I took the meat roughly from him, went with it behind the scenes, chose a corner, a rather dark one, and then, sitting among the old stage properties, I tore the meat greedily with my teeth and shed happy tears.' Later on I saw that man, often, almost every day. His name was Sergei. 
When there were no customers, he used to look at me from a distance kindly with faithful, hospitable eyes. But I had no wish to spoil, either for myself or for him, that first sympathetic impression, though I confess I was sometimes as hungry as a wolf in the winter. He was a small, rather fat, rather bald man, with black cockroach-like mustaches and kind eyes shaped like narrow, radiant semicircles. He was always in a hurry, and gave the impression of hopping along. When I received my money at last, and my theatrical slavery remained only a dream, and all those rotten people were lapping up my champagne and flattering me, how I did miss you, my dear, funny, pathetic Sergei. Of course, I shall never have dared to offer him money. Can one possibly estimate in money such kindness and human affection? I merely wanted to give him some little present before going away, a little trifle, or else something for his wife or his kids. He had a whole swarm of them. And in the morning sometimes they used to run up to him, agitated and clamorous like young sparrows. But a week before my marvelous transformation, Sergei was dismissed, and another reason. Captain von Bradke had been served a beefsteak, not to his taste. He bawled out, "'What's this you're giving me, you rascal? Don't you know that I like it red?' Sergei ventured to remark that it was not his fault, but the cook's, and that he would go and change it at once. He even added timidly, "'Excuse me, mister.' This apology maddened the officer. He struck Sergei with his beefsteak on the cheek, and turning purple, he yelled out, "'What? I am a mister to you, am I? I am not a mister to you. I am staff captain of cavalry to my emperor. Where's the proprietor? Call the proprietor. Ivan Lukianich. I want this idiot cleaned out of here today. I don't want a trace of him here. If there is, I shall never set foot in your pothouse again.' The staff captain of cavalry, von Bradke, was a man of big sprees, and for this reason Sergei was dismissed that very day. The proprietor spent the whole evening in calming the officer. I myself, when I came out between the acts for a breath of fresh air in the gardens, heard for a long time the enraged, bellowing voice issuing from the arbor. What a scoundrel the fellow is, mister! If it hadn't been for the ladies, I would have shown him the meaning of mister. 7. In the meantime, the actors had gradually drifted in, and at half-past twelve the rehearsal, due at eleven, began. They were giving a play entitled The New World, a kind of insipid sideshow transformation of Sienkiewicz's novel Quo Vadis. Dukhovskoy gave me a typewritten sheet of paper containing my lines. I had the part of the centurion in the division of Mark the Magnificent. They were pompous, loud lines, as, for example, Thy orders, O Mark, the Magnificent, have been punctually obeyed, or She will wait for thee at the pedestal of the statue of Pompeii, O Mark, the Magnificent. I liked the part, and I was already preparing a manly voice of a sort of old swashbuckler, stern and faithful. But as the rehearsal proceeded, an odd thing happened to me. To my surprise, I began to get divided and multiplied. For instance, at the end of the matron Veronica's speech, Samoylenko, who followed the play with the full text in front of him, claps his hands and shouts, 
A slave comes in. No one comes in. But who is the slave? Duhovskoy. See, who is the slave? Duhovskoy rummages hastily through some sheets of paper. Uh, there is no slave. Cut about. What about it? Lazily advises Boyev, the argumentative person with a forehead of a thinker into whose paint box I had stuck my fingers the day before. But Mark the Magnificent, Laura Larsky, suddenly takes offense at this. No, that won't do, please. I have an effective entrance here. I don't play this scene without a slave. Semoyenko's eyes gallop around the stage and halt at me. There you are. I mean, I mean, Vasilev, are you on in this act? I consult my copybook. Yes, at the very end. Then here's another part for you. Veronica's slave. Read it from the book. He claps his hands. A little less noise, gentlemen, please. Enter the slave. Noble dame, speak up, speak up. One couldn't have heard you from the first row. A few minutes later, they couldn't find a slave for the divine Marcia. In Senkevich's text, she is Lydia. And this part is dumped on me. Then some kind of house steward is missing. Me again. In this way, by the end of the rehearsal, I had, without counting the centurion, five additional parts. It wouldn't go. All at the beginning, I come out and pronounce my first words, Oh, Mark the Magnificent! Then Samyalenko stretches his legs wide apart, bends forward, and puts his hands to his ears. What? What are you mumbling? I understand nothing. Oh, Mark the Magnificent! What's that? I can hear nothing. Louder! He comes quite close to me. This is the way to do it. And in a guttural goat's voice, he shouts out loud enough to be heard all over the gardens. Oh, Mark the Magnificent, thy order! That's how it's got to be done. Remember, young man, the immortal Apothegm, one of the greatest of our Russian artists. On the stage, one doesn't speak, one declaims. One doesn't walk, one struts. He looked round with a self-satisfied air. Repeat. I repeated, but it was still worse. Then, one after the other, they began to coach me, and positively the whole lot of them instructed me to the very end of the rehearsal. Lara Larsky, with a carelessness and disgusted manner, the old swollen noble father Goncharov, whose flabby red-veined cheeks were hanging down below his chin, the argumentative Boyev, the idiot Akimenko, who was made up as a sort of Ivan the Simpleton, I was getting like a worried, steaming horse around whom a street crowd of advisers has gathered, or a new boy who has fallen from his safe family nest into a circle of cunning, experienced, and merciless schoolboys. At this rehearsal, I made a petty but persistent enemy, who afterwards poisoned every day of my existence. It happened like this. I was repeating endlessly, Oh, Mark the Magnificent! when suddenly Samyalenko rushed up to me. Allow me, allow me, my friend, allow me, allow me. Not like that, not like that. Think whom you're addressing, Mark the Magnificent himself. Well, you haven't got the faintest notion of how subordinates in ancient Rome addressed their supreme chief. Watch me, here's the gesture. He shot his right leg forward half a pace, bent his trunk, at a right angle, and then hung down his right arm after manipulating his palm into the shape of a little boat. Do you see what the gesture is? 
Do you understand? Repeat. I repeated. But with me the gesture proved so stupid and ugly that I decided on a timid objection. I beg your pardon, but it seems to me that military training, it generally avoids somehow the bent position, and, and apart from that there's a stage direction. He comes out in his armor, and you will admit that in armor... Kindly be silent, Samuelenko shouted angrily. He had become purple. If the manager orders you to stand on one foot with your tongue out, you must obey in absolute silence. Kindly repeat. I repeated, and the effect was still more grotesque. But at this point, Larolarsky came to my rescue. Leave it alone, Boris, he said wearily to Samuelenko. Can't you see that he isn't up to it? And apart from this, as you know yourself, history gives us no direct indications. The question <clears throat> is debatable. Samoylenko left me in peace about his classical gesture. But after that he never missed a chance of knifing me, stinging me, and generally insulting me. He followed all my blunders jealously. He hated me so much that I'm sure he dreamed of me every night. For my part, even now, after ten years, this very day, as soon as I remember this man, rage surges up in me and chokes my throat. It is true that before my departure, however, I will tell about that later on, otherwise it will spoil the harmony of the story. Toward the very end of the rehearsal, there suddenly appeared on the stage a tall, thin, long-nosed man with a bowler hat and a mustache. He staggered slightly, knocking against the wings, and his eyes were exactly like a pair of pewter buttons. Everyone looked at him with disgust, but no one passed any remark. "'Who is he?' I asked Tukovskoy in a whisper. "'Eh? A drunkard,' he answered casually. "'Nelyobov Foygrine, our scene painter. He's a clever fellow, acts sometimes when he's sober, but he's a perfectly hopeless drunkard. Still—' There's no one to take his place. He's cheap and paints scenes very quickly. 8. The rehearsal ended. People were going away. The actors were joking, playing on words. Mercia, commercia. Lara Larsky was telling Boyev, meaningly, to come there. I caught up with Valerianov in one of the alleys, and scarcely able to keep pace with his long strides. I said, Viktor Viktorovich, I want very much to ask you for some money, if only a little. He stopped and seemed quite stupefied. What? What money? Why money? For whom? I began to explain my position to him, but without hearing me to the end, he turned his back on me and went on. Then suddenly he stopped and called out, I say, you there, what's your name? Vasiliev? You better go to that man, your proprietor, and tell him to come and inquire for me here. I shall remain at the box office for another half hour. I'll have a word with him. I didn't go to the hotel. I flew to it. The Ukrainian listened with gloomy distrust. However, he put on his brown jacket and crawled slowly to the theater. I waited for him. A quarter of an hour later he returned. His face was like a stormy cloud, and a bundle of theater passes was sticking out of his right hand. He shoved them right under my nose and said in a muffled bass, "'There you are. I thought he'd give me coins, and he gives me bits of paper. What good are they to me?' I stood confused. 
However, the bits of paper had a certain utility. After long exhortations, the proprietor consented to share my belongings. He kept as a deposit my beautiful new English leather portmanteau, and I took my underclothes, my passport, and, what was more precious to me than anything else, my traveling notebooks. By way of goodbye, the Ukrainian asked me, What are you going to play the fool over there? Yes, I, too, I said with dignity. Oh, oh you be careful. As soon as I set eyes on you on the stage, I'll shout out, What about my twenty rubles? For the next three days, I didn't venture to trouble Verlerianov and slept on the little green bench with my small parcel of underclothes under my head as a pillow. Two nights, thank God, were warm. I even felt, as I lay on the bench, a dry heat mounting up from the pavement that had been well warmed during the day. But on the third night there was a fine, continuous rain, and I took shelter on a doorstep and was unable to sleep till the morning. The town gardens were open at eight. I stole in behind the scenes, lay down on an old curtain, and slept soundly for two hours. Of course, I came under Samulenko's eyes, and he, at great length, and stingingly informed me that the theater was a temple of art, and not at all a dormitory or a boudoir or a doss house. Then I decided to overtake the manager again in the alley and ask him for some money, however little, as I had nowhere to sleep. I beg your pardon, he said, waving his arms apart. What has it got to do with me? You're not a child, are you? In any case, I'm not your nurse. I kept silent. His half-closed eyes wandered over the bright sunny sand of the footpath, and then he said thoughtfully, Suppose, look here, suppose you spend the nights in the theater. I suggested that to the night watch, but the fool was afraid. I thanked him, but only on one condition. No smoking in the theater. If you want to smoke, go out into the gardens. After that, I was guaranteed a sleeping place under a roof. Sometimes in the daytime, I would go some three miles along the river and wash my clothes in a modest little corner and dry them on the branches of the willows. My linen was of great help to me. From time to time, I would go to the bazaar and sell there a shirt or something, on the twenty or thirty kopecks acquired in this way, I would feed myself for two whole days. Things were taking, visibly, a favorable turn for me. Once I even managed, in a happy moment, to get a ruble out of Valerianov, and immediately I dispatched a telegram to Ilya. Dying from hunger, wire money, see, theater, Leontovich. End of section 8 Recording by Kevin Davidson www.blogordie.com